Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Well, it's inevitable that we talk a lot about Donald Trump here on Worldview, and this week is no exception, but we're taking a step back from the news cycle to take a more in-depth look at the Trump administration's foreign policy and the challenges it poses for the rest of the world, especially for political leaders here in Europe. And I'm delighted to be joined here in studio by Thomas Wright, who is the director of the Centre on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Tom, it's a return visit to us here, so welcome back. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Uh, Tom, does a three-word term we increasingly see used in any discussion on the current international order, and that's great power competition. We increasingly hear we're in a new era of great power competition. Now, now, obviously, the idea of competition between great powers isn't a new one. So what do people mean when they talk about great power competition in today's context? Yeah, I think it's one of these things that, you know, predated Donald Trump, really. There was a lot of... um, uh, talk about this in 2016, really since 2014 when Russia annexed uh, Crimea and invaded parts of Ukraine. We had the Ukraine sort of crisis coming to a head and then what was happening with China in you know the South China Sea and elsewhere in East Asia. And I think it just raised um, uh, the possibility that uh, some of the major powers, particularly authoritarian powers, were unlikely to go along the same pathway as you know, democracy. So 10, 15 years ago, there was a reasonable expectation that even if Russia and China wouldn't liberalize domestically, that they may be sort of responsible stakeholders in the international order. And now I think what we're seeing is, you know, very different types of models. Um, There's sort of a democratic model that obviously is highly problematic, you know, a lot of democratic backsliding, you know, real problems in America, real problems with Brexit and elsewhere. But, you know, there is still sort of the core of, you know, that old sort of liberal international order approach. And then we see in in China in particular and also uh, other sort of countries, um, you know, Russia, maybe Hungary and some others that have moved away from democracy gravitating, you know, toward a different approach, um, one that is much more, uh, you know, authoritarian, you know, has a more mercantilist um, sort of outlook. And, you know, I, I think we're, we're still a far way off, thankfully, from a new Cold War or anything like that. But I think we, we are seeing a more competitive environment. And then those two different models have real internal pressures, you know, as we're seeing, obviously, in Hong Kong this week, but also in the U.S., where, you know, in some ways, Donald Trump is on the other side. You know, he's more sympathetic to the authoritarian, mercantilist, protectionist, you know, approach. So um, it's a much more volatile international environment, I think, than it was was, you know, before the financial crisis. So when the Cold War ended and there was some optimism around that the world was entering a kind of a new phase of one of convergence and cooperation and so on, have we already now moved on from that? That seems to have been very short-lived. Yeah, I think we have moved on from it. I think we've returned in some ways to the historical norm. You know, major power cooperation is pretty rare. Um, you know, now, you know, the 90s and 2000s weren't, you know, all you know, motherhood and apple pie and, 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 and you know, peace and light. Like there was obviously many problems with the Balkan Wars, 9-11, Iraq, Afghanistan. So there were many challenges that felt, you know, very uh, dangerous uh, at the moment, you know, of, of it. Um, but what was different, I think, is that, you know, we didn't really worry about real clashes between the U.S. and China or U.S. and Russia. And that's sort of back, and I think that makes things more complicated. But I think when we look back historically, you know, the anomaly will be 
that sort of 20-year period after the Cold War. Uh, what's interesting, though, I think about this new period is that it's not just a return to the 19th century or something, you know, because this is taking place in a highly interdependent world with these, you know, really dramatic new technologies of, you know, on, on social media, you know, now we see artificial intelligence and others coming down the road. And so we really don't know how this is, you know, going to play out. So I think it's, a, you know, all of this, I think, is separate to Trump. And then when you put Trump in on top of all of that with his own, you know, let's say, kindly unique, <laughs> you know, characteristics, I think it makes it, it, makes it uh, you know, very precarious. And when we talk about competition, is it essentially competition between the US and China? Does it boil down to that or is that oversimplifying it? I think it's I think that's at the heart of it, but I think it's it's not just that really. I think it's really about if you think about it from Ireland's point of view, um, or other small countries or medium sized countries, it's really about, you know, do we have certain sort of rules of the road, particularly on economic issues? you know, where the rights of all countries are basically, you know, respected um, and we have a commitment to multilateralism or do we, you know, have sort of a law of the jungle, you know, where, you know, might is right and, you know, if you're powerful, you can operate by a different set of rules. Now, you know, those old rules, they were never perfect and the US and others violated them, you know, on occasion. But I think we there was sort of a basic structure, particularly on the economic side and, and then also on human rights and, um, you know, the big questions about facial recognition, artificial intelligence, all of these things, like do, are they, what rules are they going to be governed by? And so I think it, it, it's bigger than any two countries. You know, there are real issues at stake here um, that, that I think affect all, um, you know, all countries. And um, notwithstanding that, I suppose, just to keep it on, on the US-China for the moment, you mentioned Donald Trump's singular approach, if you like, to foreign policy and, and everything else. But um, leaving aside the question of whether the tariffs he has imposed, uh, his administration has imposed on Chinese goods, whether those tariffs are working or not, or whether his tactics are working or not, isn't he correct to single out China as the major threat to the international order? Well, there, there was a shift, I think, before Trump became president um, uh, in the US toward greater skepticism of, of China. And that was largely driven by you know, developments in China, because since Xi Jinping has become president um, back in 2011 or 12, you know, that that um, China has become more authoritarian. You know, there has been sort of a crackdown on uh, in, in, in China. Um, and we've seen it in Xinjiang, obviously, most dramatically, but it also, you know, operates more broadly um, around the country. Um, and, you know, we've seen it in the foreign policy side in the South China Sea, you know, Belt and Road Initiative and other things. Um, so I think there was a recognition that we're in a more competitive, uh, uh, you know, state with China. Um, Trump, you know, pursued that. I think Clinton would have pursued that if she won. Trump did so in a way, I think, that has made a lot of people concerned about, you know, about what form this competition is taking. So he does so sort of unilaterally. He started a trade war, he's imposing tariffs, you know, very focused on the trade deficit, um, you know, highly, you know, basically saying he might trade away, Hong, you know, Taiwan uh, for concessions on the trade side, you know, really rebuffing any help from Europe. Um, so I think there's a lot of concerns about how he's doing it strategically. 
Um, but if there was a Democrat elected, I think in 2020, I think you would see, you wouldn't see a return to, you know, the China policy of 2010, 2012, 2014, or even 2016. And, and by that point, it had shifted a bit in, in the Obama administration. So I think we we have seen a shift, but I think there's, there's big, um, you know, there's, uh, still big sort of caveats and concerns about how to do that and how to do it responsibly in a way that, you know, preserves cooperation on the global economy, on climate change and other, other issues while, you know, competing where we disagree. You wrote a very interesting piece recently in which you argued that the Democrats should place China at the centre of their foreign policy as they head into next year's presidential election. And that's despite the fact that you explained yourself in the same piece, talking about foreign policy doesn't win votes for politicians in the US and I suspect anywhere else either. So why do you think the Democrats should be talking about China? Well, I think when you look at the foreign policy debate in the Democratic Party at the moment, it's pretty small ball. You know, it's it's sort of saying, look, you know, Trump is unilateralist. He's attacking the liberal international order. We need to work more with allies and we need to you know, focus mainly at home. And that's really a message that Democrats have used almost every, you know, election um, against Republicans going back a couple of decades. And it's it's fine. Uh, it's not wrong. Um, but there's a lot of things happening, I think, that people are anxious about in the world. And I think, you know, it would be good if a candidate could try to articulate that in a way that Bill Clinton sort of explained globalization and, and said, here's what's happening. And I think China is a big sort of piece of that. And um, I think we need to talk about, you know, the broader sort of economic challenges, you know, that are affecting people, not just on automation and a technology, which is real, um, but also on, on the trading relationship with China and some of the bigger questions in the global economy. So I'd like to see, you know, Democrats basically say that they will work with the EU and with European countries and with Japan and Australia and others and then, you know, to develop sort of a common position and then negotiate collectively, you know, with China to try to, you know, fix the global economy and to, you know, to also, uh, you know, to be clear on human rights and other issues where it's important to sort of, you know, to stand up and, and be counted. And I think China is one of those very few, or maybe the only issue that sort of cuts across uh, all different issue spaces. So there's a huge economic side to it. There's a human rights and value side to it. There's a, you know, political diplomatic security side to it. And I think it is, you know, it is one of the few things that's sort of dramatically affecting people domestically. Most foreign policy issues don't affect people domestically. You know, but but the China one does does on trade, it does on economics, it does on technology. Uh, you know, and these this technological competition we're seeing, um, and on a variety of other areas. So I think that would be, um, you know, I think it could be a part of a sort of a core message, um, but it would be very different to Trump, right? So it would be saying that, you know, Trump is, I, you know, I, I, there's a, a, a scholar called Eli Ratner who's a great face about this um, that I quoted in the piece where he says Trump is confrontational but not competitive, you know, and I think that's sort of the the, the real uh, question is how can the U.S. be competitive over 20, 30 years? And so, for instance, how because the U.S. needs to be competitive, what sort of domestic investments do you need to make at home, you know, on education, um, on infrastructure, on technology, on other issues, and to use that, you know, global rationale 
or that strategic rationale to to make the case for investments that otherwise you know might be rejected by Republicans as you know more sort of spending, but to say that this is necessary to build the country's capacity. So you think there's a message Democrats should be able to give to their voters, which is essentially this affects you and your jobs and your livelihood, this Chinese threat, if you like. It's not an abstract well, I would foreign call it policy more, issue. Yeah, I mean, I would call it a challenge probably rather than a threat. You know, I, I don't want, I think it's important not to, you know, not to make it, you know, uh, uh, too sort of Manichaean or anything. But I think it is, it is, it is true, um, you know, that there is a more, competitive environment. It is true that unless the U.S. invests at home and is smart about those investments and thinks about them strategically, that the U.S. will fall behind um, China and maybe others. And, and, and trying to sort of make that unified, you know, case for action internationally and domestically, I think is a, is a, you know, is a compelling message. And you actually see some Republicans beginning to make it. You know, Marco Rubio, the Republican senator from Florida is now talking about an industrial policy um, to, you know, to try to address Chinese developments in artificial intelligence. You know, five years ago, that would be called socialism <laughs> yeah, by most Republicans. Um, so things begin to, to change. I think the world is changing. And I think it's, you know, it's, it, it's important for the candidates to sort of talk about that. Some of them have Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of St. Bend, Indiana, is talking about it. Biden talks about it a little bit. Warren and Sanders talk about it. So, you know, it's beginning, I think. Um, and you mentioned there Europe. Um, uh, Trump has rebuffed any, any overtures or attempts by Europe to work with him on the, on the Chinese uh, issue is, is why is that you think is that is that back to the thing about he's he's he prefers confrontation but he's not really interested in in uh, working with others uh, to to yeah be more competitive yeah it's a it's an interesting sort of puzzle president macron of france said it to him and you know he said we should in the eu need to work with you in china and he said the eu is worse than china only smaller so it's sort of a double insult <laughs> you know um but um i think it's from what we know of what he's saying to people, part of it, he thinks he's going to get a great deal with China and he doesn't want to share it with Europe. That's one reason he is offered. Another is that he, he sees the EU because of his association with Farage and with Bannon and others as a negative influence. And he's never really understood the importance of working with allies, even though it, to the rest of us it seems blindingly obvious you know, so it's just not really in his DNA. Now, people in his administration do want to work with Europe and China, but um, they can't bring it to the presidential level. And so that makes it pretty complicated. And it's extraordinary, isn't it, that while he extols his friendship with uh, the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, he, he seems determined to cast the European Union as an adversary of the the, the US. Um, I'd encourage anyone, Tom, who hasn't done so already to go on the Brookings Institution website and um, put in your name, uh, Thomas Wright, and you'll see there the latest transatlantic scorecard. And it's a, it's a quarterly assessment you do of the state of relations between the US and uh, and Europe. And the most recent one in July, you gave the US, US-European relations a score of 3.9 out of possible 10. Just tell us a bit about the scorecard, how you sort of, how you formulate that assessment and how bad is the score of 3.9 between two long-standing allies? Yeah, um, so the scorecard we we started um, as part of a, a project we do at the Robert Bosch Stiftung, a foundation in Germany, and 
we sort of polled all of our scholars, resident and non-resident, on what they think the state of relations are uh, between US and Europe more generally, and then specifically on individual countries. Um, it's always been pretty low under Trump. I think this is the fourth maybe iteration of it. We do it every quarter, and um, so we're maybe approaching the year mark um, soon on it. Um, it's. Um, I think it, it reflects the fact that the score, I think, is low, definitely by any reasonable metric, but it's been fairly consistent. It's not, it, it, and it could be lower, and I think the reason it's sort of where it is, which is around 3.5 to 4, um, is because Trump does have a very hostile attitude to the EU. Um, he has a very bad relationship with individual, particularly Western European leaders. Um, you know, he doesn't get on at, at all with Merkel. He had a terrible relationship with Theresa May. We'll see what the one with Boris Johnson is like. I think it may be worse than people think it's going to be, but we'll, we'll see. Um, he tends to have a good relationship with Orban, sort of the Hungarian strongman, and with 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 others who, you know, who who may you know be more to his liking, like Salvini in Italy. Um, but so so that's all negative. On the on the slightly um, reassuring side, you know, there has been a ceasefire on the trade dispute between Juncker and Trump, and so we haven't seen the imposition of auto tariffs. And we haven't seen him really trying to operationalize an anti-EU policy in terms of really trying to drive a wedge. He he would like to do that, I think, um, but and some of his administration would, but we haven't really seen them implement it. And so that means that it's a little bit, you know, there's still room for it to drop. <laughs> so I think if you see, you know, auto tariffs or... Um, them really trying to divide the EU and and encourage Eastern Europe to break with Western Europe as much as possible, then I think that score will plummet lower. I I think at the moment, um, the Trump administration has so many problems um, that that sort of protects Europe a little bit because it means that, you know, they're not really focused all that much on the EU, even though uh, several officials have hostile intent towards it. Just by way of comparison, what would the score have been, say, during the Obama years? You know, what would what would you expect the? Well, we didn't. We, yeah, we didn't do it in okay. the Obama years, but I would expect it would probably be more like a six or a seven. Yes. So I think there's a you know, you, the, the, Trump is the first president really since World War II, since the start of European integration, uh, to be hostile to European integration, and that I think right off the bat means that it has to be a pretty low score, and then he's the only president in modern times who has a very bad relationship with Germany, a very bad relationship with the UK, and, you know, a a sort of mixed relationship with France. France is sort of a special case because previous presidents have had bad relations with France too, but... um, And he has this very unusual sort of relationship with Macron individually, so... Yeah, he does. It's up and down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it does, it does. So I think he is... Um, you know, but Trump is on, on Europe, like he he really has no personal commitment to Europe. Um, his administration has sort of persuaded him to stay in NATO and everything. But uh, on a personal basis, he's not, you know, every other president sort of in their bones essentially was, you know, very much a transatlanticist. And he, he is not. And for a while, European leaders um, in response seemed to try to manage the situation and almost pretend none of this was happening and then in the last few months, we've seen Angela Merkel becoming increasingly 
assertive or almost uh, loosen our language yeah, and getting yeah. back at Trump and so on. So do you think has have EU leaders sort of given up on Trump? I think they have. Uh, I think they have his number. You know, I think they know what he's like, and they know that um, they can't really trust him. Um, they also know that flattery won't really help all that much. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, they really need to maintain sort of the alliance and relationship with the U.S. because for them, I think the alternatives are are pretty bleak and. Um, I think they are looking at 2020 as really the moment of truth. And so if he's reelected, I think then things will begin to change very fundamentally because they'll conclude this is a permanent shift and not a temporary aberration. Um, but if he is if he's defeated, I think they will try to repair relations with the next president. You know, so um, and I think that's not a bad strategy. I mean, a lot of people say, look, it's not going to go back to the way it was and it probably won't. But um, you know, but if you if you think about the the strategic choices they have, um, you know, it, 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 they're not good ones. You know, they basically um, mean maybe a more sort of nationalistic position or much more, you know, uh, work on on their own individual security or or working more with China, working more with Russia to compensate for. You know the absence of America, maybe an erosion of European commitments to human rights because they don't feel they have enough strength to, to carry it out. And so I think the leaders justifiably want to keep all of that going for as long as they can, which is why they're trying to buy time. And and I think what's interesting, if you look at their relations with Trump, they they aren't giving him much in terms of you know time or, or praise, but they're also not looking for that much either. So I think they've really downgraded their ambition. Um, they're not, they don't want to be disappointed, right? So they're not proposing big initiatives on climate that they know will be shot down or on trade. They're just trying to basically wait it out. And, um, you know, and I think we'll, we'll you know, they'll, they'll, we'll find out on, on that score. But I think it's, it's um, you know, anyone who's expecting a big sort of shift towards the US, I think we'll have to wait until until after the election. He had a terrible relationship really with Theresa May. It started yeah. with him holding hands in the, yeah. uh, in the White yeah. House and then it just deteriorated and he ended up essentially embarrassing her at every turn and almost bullying yeah. her, if you like. Now, but I was interested in what you said a moment ago. You think things might not be any better for Boris Johnson. Why, why do you not think so? Um, both Johnson and Trump are, are putting a lot of stock in their personal rapport, you know, and the similarities in style. Uh, which are you know pretty obvious from the hair on through uh, to you know to rhetoric, um, but there but you know Johnson is a is an unusual member of the populist club. You know he's he's um, a populist on Brexit and he's hardline on Brexit, obviously, and that makes him a member of the populist club. You know of Salvini and Trump and Modi and all you know others. Um, but on other issues, he's not. So he's he's pro he's relatively pro immigration, even though a lot of the Brexiteers are not. He's uh, fairly pro climate change, action on climate change. I think, as I understand it, he 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 was a strong supporter of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, uh, you know, he's in favor of open trade. He's not a protectionist. He so on the issues. Um, and the UK has a very different stance on China, doesn't it? For yeah, and, and a bit reasons. of a different mm -hmm. stance on China. So I think that when, you know, when uh, Trump has often said good things about people who said good things about him, but when you get into the substance where they are looking for things from the UK, 
I think Johnson will be reluctant to make that many concessions. Partly because if he does, that will help Corbyn, you know, help Jeremy Corbyn. You know, so if, if Johnson says yes, we're also pulling out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement and working with the U.S. to stop any action on climate, you know, that would probably hurt him politically in Britain, but as it should. And so I don't think he will do that. And so I, th I think that we'll have a honeymoon period between Trump and Johnson. But then I think that could change quite quickly. And one, you know, if you're looking for metrics on this, I think one objective metric is the Huawei decision, right, that Theresa May took to, to basically, uh, you know, have the, US, have the UK work with Huawei on there, you know, to try to ring fence their involvement, but to include them. That came under enormous criticism from, the, from both parties in the US. You know, will Boris Johnson reverse that or not? Like, what will his approach to China be? as you sort of highlighted a moment ago, will he look for a trade deal or access to markets? And, you know, everything we know about Johnson's approach to China is that he will, he is probably more pro-engagement with China than Theresa May was, but he'll be under pressure from the White House not to. So I think that's the, you know, that that's sort of the interesting thing to watch. And then, of course, at the end of the year, which it seems a far away now because of everything that's going to happen between now and then, but there's a NATO summit in London and that Johnson, if he's still prime minister, will be hosting. So um, I think between now and then, we may see a few, uh, you know, a, a little bit of rockiness to the to the relationship. Although I think in the initial period, there'll be a personal rapport. Um, you mentioned the honeymoon period there, and the honeymoon with Kim Jong Un seems to. Um, yeah, be continuing. match made in heaven. Yeah, yeah and it has survived, you know, in recent days some more uh, uh, missile tests conducted yeah. by North Korea. And this has prompted Trump to reaffirm his trust in, in, in Kim Jong-un. And he, he uh, even, you know, he said the missile tests didn't breach any agreements he's made with Kim. And he tweeted, um, his tweet, he's the, the final part of his three-part tweet, he will do the right thing because he is far too smart not to, and he does not want to disappoint his friend, President Trump. Yeah. Um, but Trump has invested a lot of political capital in this re rapprochement, hasn't he? I mean, is he, how exposed is he, you know, in the event of things going wrong here? So, I, I mean, it's a totally bizarre episode, obviously, of, you know, in the history of U.S. diplomacy. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. Um, you know, there's a game people play in Twitter. Imagine if Obama did this and, you you know, with Kim Jong-un, I mean, imagine if Obama did half of, said half of the things that President Trump is saying, like Kim has a great vision for his country. And, you know, which is he, I think he said in the same set of tweets that you mentioned. Um, so it's very odd. But I think if you strip away the rhetoric and you strip away what Trump is sort of saying, what it basically boils down to is Trump is mainly motivated by North Korean development of ICBMs, these long-range ballistic missiles, nuclear missiles that can hit America. And he, his de facto deal with Kim is if you don't test these missiles and test these weapons, we're fine. You know, as long as I don't see video on CNN of a missile test that can hit Hawaii or Seattle, I'm going to say, I'm going to call it a win. And as long as Kim does not do that, Trump is, is, is not going to call him out. Now, that creates a huge problem for Japan, right? Because Japan has always said the short-range missiles are as big a problem for them as long-range. And pretty much everyone in the administration other than Trump agrees with that. But Trump saying 
in response to those tests the other day, look, we didn't even talk about short range. That's not part of the deal. I think will have been very upsetting to Prime Minister Abe and very concerning to Japan. And that's partly what lies behind this Japan-South Korea dispute. The Japanese feel like South Korea sort of sold them out on, on North Korea. Um, but, but for Trump, I think it's the ICBMs. And, and that's what his main motivation. So he will say, continue to say incredibly nice things about Kim Jong-un, I think, as long as he thinks that, um, you know, the ICBMs are off the table. But eventually, when it's clear, or if it becomes clear that North Korea has n- no intention of moving any further towards denuclearization, um, which uh, yeah. initially was supposed to be the goal, will it, will it not... Um, Maybe even not in this term, but if there's a second Trump term, does it not at some point does he not start to pay a price for the, you know, the failure to actually change anything there? I'm not. I think the U.S. will pay a price. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure if he will pay a political price, because I think people don't fully sort of understand it, and I think they look at it and say it's good that he's talking, and you know, they, you know, they're not doing anything in missile tests. Now they're continuing to build nuclear weapons. That they. Administration's own intelligence analyst analysis says that um, you know they're continuing to do all these things, um, continuing on the short range side. I think it's a big problem just to you know to allow them to choose the moment where they break out. Um, you know there are no good solutions to this. I think is also worth observing. Like it's not as if there's a good sort of you know alternative. But I think those of us who are sort of critical of Trump and North Korea would like to see. A much more um, a tougher approach that um, that included diplomacy um, uh, to try to you know I don't think denuclearization is going to happen right so I think I think it's pretty clear um, I think there are sort of other types of agreements that could be uh, pursued but I think long term the real objective is containment you know we have to try to ensure that any nuclear weapons that North Korea have are useless for anything other than basic deterrence you know they can't be used for power projection I think short range has to be part of that um, and I think you know there has to be more pressure on on Kim Jong-un I mean, it has to be a diplomatic outcome because there are no military options good military options at all um, on this. Um, but, you know, Trump, I think, is normalizing Kim and has given him a lot, a, an enormous amount, um, much more than, you know, the freeze for freeze that was sort of thought about and rejected initially. And I think that will, you know, I think the U.S. will will pay a price for that in the short run as well as the medium and long term. Um, I'd like to touch briefly on the Middle East. We yeah. maybe haven't got a, a, a lot of time and we might return to this topic another time. But um, because it's such a big subject in its, in its own right, but especially the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, Trump arrived in the White House promising the deal of the century. Um, is that deal further away than ever? What are the prospects there? Do you see any signs? Of uh, I mean, the prospects, I think, were all zero, and <laughs> they're still zero. Um, it's, you know, if you if you take the what we know about the deal, and, you know, it's been postponed and postponed and postponed because of various things, including the new elections in Israel. And uh, so we may never see the full offer because, you know, we'll be in election season in the U.S. by the time, you know, that the conditions are right elsewhere. Um, but from what we understand, you know, Kushner, Jura Kushner's, who's, you know, obviously president's son-in-law, but in charge of this process, his belief is that... Um, 
is sort of a, uh, you know, tip, and typical might be an unfair word, but quintessential sort of businessman's sort of view of it, which is um, all this history is unhelpful. You know, all this culture and all these old issues aren't helpful. We just need to focus on people's daily lives. And so what we need to do is promise to make Palestinians the day, their daily lives better um, through economic incentives. And in exchange for that, um, you know, we basically have some version of the status quo. And they should say yes, um, because um, because their individual sort of lived experience will, will become better because of more investment or more jobs. Um, you know, this has been tried before and hasn't worked. And obviously, it ignores the human condition and human nature and politics. And no one wants to give up everything they believe in or what they feel are their sort of rights or historical claims simply because you offer them an economic incentive. You know, no, the U.S. wouldn't do that. Israel wouldn't do that. Palestinians aren't about to do that. So I think there's basically no prospect that this works. Um, and I think the plan is a very sort of poor one. There are still elements that are, that are unknown on it. Um, but I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it working. I think the larger question, though, which the rest of us have to grapple with is, you know, is the two-state solution still alive? And is that um, still, you know, a reasonable thing uh, to to support? And I think that, you know, for the moment, I think, you know, that it is, um, that we have to go back to that. There is no alternative to it. I think that it's in real trouble. There are real threats to it. But I think it's still by far sort of the preferred outcome. And I think a future president needs to figure out a way to try to, you know, piece things back together on that process, even though we're very far away off, I think, any, you know, agreement. Um, but it, without the two-state solution, I think things get very, um, they they get very risky on all on all sides. You know, I think it's, we will see people agitating for, for alternatives uh, you know, that I think will be very dangerous. I remember actually when Trump, I think it was shortly, it was before he was elected, if I remember correctly, and he did a briefing with uh, people in the New York Times and they asked him if he was in favour of a two-state solution and they said he didn't seem to know. No, they I think he probably lunch, didn't know, yeah. They came back and he said he was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I'm not even quite sure, is he is he still, uh, where, where does he stand on that, on the, the, the two-state solution? Have they moved away completely from that? I think he, you know, he doesn't think about this stuff in great detail. So he's not, um, you know, he, he his default when he's asked something and he doesn't know what it is, he says, we're looking at it closely. That's normally a code for, uh, I could ask him what this means uh, after this interview. But he... Um, uh, so uh, he didn't. He didn't. I think know what that was. That's not unusual. He doesn't know what a lot of things um, mean. But I think he. He's not. Um, he's. He's mainly sort of focused on the politics of it. He obviously will see if he gives Netanyahu major concessions in the run up to the new elections. He obviously recognized Israeli sovereignty over uh, the Golan Heights over you know before the last elections. Um, I think there will be a big concern about a similar move. You know, in the West Bank, um, so we'll 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 see where that um, goes. But I think, you know, he will be getting some counsel from Gulf allies, you know, against doing anything like that because I think that would raise the domestic cost for them. Um, but I, I think that the, you know, we're not going to see I think any progress in the two-state solution while Trump is president. 
Um, I think the larger question is, you know, if it can be salvaged after he leaves, given all of the changes, you know, in the in the region. Before we finish, Tom, I'd be interested in getting your take on on a couple of more domestic issues, yeah. if you like. Um, uh, we see the very large field of candidates for the seeking the Democratic Party nomination for the next year's presidential election. How do you see that um, that particular race playing out within the Democratic Party? Yeah, I think there's a big, you know, there's a there's a lot of there's several sort of important dividing lines I think in the primary at the moment that are sort of unstated. Um, one is between those candidates who say, like Joe Biden, that we need to sort of unify the country and try to proceed in a realistic manner, recognizing that Democrats won't have a big majority in the Senate and have, uh, uh, you know, the, to transform the country by unifying it after Trump leaves um, and to try to work with Republicans. And then you have another group that says that's completely unrealistic, that the problem is much bigger than Trump and that you really need to sort of confront Republicans and just fight uh, you know, as hard as possible and be as ambitious as possible. And that's, you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and then, you know, the the four new freshmen and congresswomen and, and others who are sort of making this um, case. So that's one, I think, major um, uh, division. Um, another, I think, is as you, and it sort of lines up in, in a similar way, are in individual issues. Um, you see people who are sort of breaking with President Obama and calling for a more uh, far-reaching agenda, particularly on health care and maybe on immigration and other issues, and then those who who worry um, that that may make uh, the Democratic nominee unelectable. You know, if the nominee comes out in favour of abolishing private health insurance, say Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have said, you know, is that, you know, is that person electable? That's an open question as well. And those differences, I think, are now really beginning to burst into public view. We've had two debates of 20 people each. Um, we're likely to see that cut to about six or seven in September because the threshold is going far up. The chairman of the Democratic Party has made a decision to be quite aggressive in the standards um, that need to be met to qualify for debates because he wants to reduce the field quickly. And so we may see it narrow. I think there's probably five or six viable candidates, you know, uh, Biden, uh, Harris, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg, and maybe one of the, uh, maybe one of Castro, Rourke, or Booker um, in, in the mix. And so I think that will um, sort of narrow um, but I think it's an unsettled field still, and there's a lot of sort of concern about how it's you, – you sense a lot of anxiety amongst Democrats that, uh, you know, this, that, it, that the debates may not be going as well as, as people hoped, although it's still a very long way ahead of us, I think, and there's always a bit of anxiety over the summer months when things are quiet. So, um, so I think, you know, we, everyone will be watching closely, obviously, in, 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 in the next um, – a uh, few months, but I think you know you'd still have to think that Biden's in with a very good shot. Um, that Harris is probably the second favorite, and then you know Sanders and Warren are big factors. But for them, I think you know the the, the case they need to make is that their far-reaching agenda would be sort of viable in a general election campaign. What do you think would be the smarter thing for them to do? Do, do I detect from your answer that really you th the, the centre ground or a, centre, a more centrist candidate has a better chance of unseating Trump? Well, I, I, I do worry that on... I, I, I do 
worried that um, with, say, some of the things that, um, uh, like on, on health care or, or on immigration policy, I mean, these are all largely domestic issues, but um, that if, if the nominee adopts a very sort of ambitious agenda on those, that Trump will make the election a referendum on those issues um, rather than um, on him. And the way he's and, attempted to make the Democratic yeah, Party, yeah, uh, he's, the, four, the, the squad, if you like, yeah. he's attempted to make identify them with the Democratic Party and tell voters they're right. the Democrats. Right. <laughs> and, and, and when you look in, you know, when you look in detail, let's say something like Medicare for All, if you ask people, are you in favor of Medicare for All? They say yes. And then if you say, uh, if you know that that means you lose your private health insurance, are you in favor? It halves. You know, so I think that uh, the party needs to be very um, needs to be very confident um, that any choice it makes about general direction is sort of sustainable politically. Um, I also think when you look back at the midterms, um, you know, healthcare was a huge advantage for Democrats in the midterms, and so it will be a remarkable turnaround if it became a big advantage for Republicans. You know, that, that the Democrats were on the defensive. Uh, I think Biden is sort of making that point. So, uh, you know, I, I, so I think it's, to me, this is, everyone says this election is the most important one ever. That's a, a cliche, but I think it is definitely true the next time because the issue for the world really is whether or not Trump is a permanent shift or a temporary aberration. That's the big question. And um, I have, you know, sort of argued, I guess, that, what we've seen with Trump is since the beginning is that he started out somewhat constrained, then he sort of broke out and became quite hubristic, and now he's sort of going full steam ahead, even though the costs are becoming due on these things. And I think in a second term, he'll be much more radical than in the first, and he'll see it as a vindication. And so I think that it's, um, you know, this is a very, it's a very important moment, and I think it's it's important to try to get a, as, as a, a unifying figure as possible um, to sort of make the case, you know, a, a, against the sort of direction that he's offering, which is what we've seen in recent weeks domestically and, and on, on the, you know, on the, with all the shootings and the white nationalism and everything, and, and then on the, on the broader sort of direction internationally. And if you were to take your scorecard out and rate the chances of Trump securing a second term, um, we don't know who his opponent is yet, but... I think at the moment it? it's pretty close to 50-50. I would have thought before it was like 60-40 he would lose, you know, that a Democrat would win. I think that what's been, you know, that the uncertainty and and uh, the lack of a real sort of star on the Democratic side thus far and the fact that the economy is still doing quite well, although there's some there was a, some rocky days recently in the markets, but... Um, uh, you know, is generally doing very well and people are generally pretty satisfied according to the polls about the direction. Now, one could argue that started with Obama and this is continuation, but, you know, it benefits the incumbent. Um, I think that makes it relatively close to 50-50. I mean, it's going to be a very closely fought election. You know, I think that's pretty... That's that's pretty clear now. It's not going to be fought as a blowout. It may end up being a blowout, but I think on one side or the other... Most likely, if it's a blowout, I think he loses, but um, but it will be fought very intensely up until Election Day. That's all for this week. Thanks again to Tom Wright for coming in today to talk to us. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.